0: This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial, subsidiary a commercial
1: subsidiary
0: of the BBC.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: I think one of the most amazing things about being in an impenetrable forest is that you can feel really isolated and... You know, away from civilization, because it's so thick and so enclosed. If you just have to go off for a pee, you know, you only have to walk like 10 metres away from everyone, but you can suddenly feel totally on your own. And that's, you know, it's quite a scary feeling. You know, you're in the impenetrable forest on your own.
3: Today on the BBC Earth podcast, we're exploring the unexplored places. We're telling stories of isolation. And we're starting with this man.
0: My name's James Hemming, and I'm a producer-director on uh, First Year on Earth.
3: That's a new BBC series coming out next year. He was filming gorillas in the Impenetrable Forest, which sounds like it's in Middle Earth, but it's not. It's in Uganda, and it's teeming with life.
0: The forest is amazing, right, sound-wise. It's kind of... You've got birds and you've got insects. Forests are pretty tricky to see things, but to hear things is amazing. Before you see the gorillas, the sound that they make. It sounds like you're in Jurassic Park. You just hear like this, the sound of what must only be a velociraptor or something like that. Before I went to the Impenetrable Forest, I didn't really know what to expect. It is dense. If you just think about a curtain of foliage, you know, vines and branches, that everything that is trying to stop you from moving, it's like having ten people around you just holding you back as you're trying to walk through this forest. There's no paths or anything, like you're literally hacking your way through. And then obviously we've got filming equipment, which, you know, is part of part of the job, but Blimmin difficult. What makes it even more frustrating is gorillas just move incredibly easy through it. They could just be moving at a slow, kind of walking pace, but there is no way you can. You're literally like one step forward, two steps back, move sideways. And then Isn't you're obviously going down a hill and then you're, you're trying to film and trying to get the tripod in position and camera quite is pretty heavy and so then you're trying to get everything and then suddenly the gorillas have gone. It is Impossible not to feel attached to them because they're so similar to humans. You know, they could be feeding on the leaves and then suddenly glance at you and they sort of just give you that look where they're like, uh, What are you doing? You can just sort of picture your own family. Everyone's sat around the dinner table, everyone's just munching on leaves, and not that my family do that, but you know, it's um privileged position to be able to like, spend time just watching.
3: If you want to know exactly where James was, you might need to look at a map. Around halfway down Africa, and just off to the east, you find Uganda. Just to the south of that, Rwanda. Between these two is a thick band of lush forest nestled in a chain of volcanoes. Those are the Virunga Mountains, and it's here that around half the world's mountain gorillas live. 80 kilometres away, there's another patch of forest, all on its own, and that's where the other half live. That's Windy, and that's where James is.
0: And what you have now is a population of mountain gorillas that are solely in Windy, and that's the only place they can go. And as a result of that, you've got a very unique species of mountain gorilla. Their fur is supposed to be a bit shorter. They are still the same species, but they kind of have cultural differences. For instance, they tend to eat more fruit in Windy. People didn't used to think that gorillas could climb trees, but these guys do. You see a a huge silverback balancing on two thin branches. looks like a trapeze artist or something. It's an amazing sight.
4: This whole idea that some event might separate one group of individuals from the rest of the species, and then if there's no gene flow for a long enough period of time, they might evolve into a new species. It's just fascinating, right? That's Professor Felisa, My name Smith is Felisa Smith from the University of New Mexico. I'm a paleoecologist. so I study...
3: She's a specialist in the way species and evolve and how animals, when they get isolated,
4: like our windy mountain gorillas, start to, to change. Uh, many hundreds of millions of years. She's particularly obsessed with islands. When animals get on an island, maybe they raft out on a log or something like that, or perhaps they're isolated from the mainland by the raising of the sea level. That often then leads to really strange morphologies. For mammals, it's often the case that they get bigger or smaller. Rodents, for example, tend to get very large on islands, whereas large bodied things, deer, are a great example, get smaller. This is so common that it's actually got a name. It's called Foster's Rule or the Island Rule. So why does this happen? I mean, that's a good question, right? Body size is the single most important thing about an animal. Um, It regulates everything. If you know the body size of an animal, you know how much it eats, you know how fast it walks. You might know how fast it speciates, what its lifespan is likely to be, you know how many babies it's going to have, you know the kinds of food it can eat or not. All of those things are tied into body size. And there's active selection on body size all the time. So, in a mainland habitat, being large is an adaptive form of avoiding predation. Now you get on an island and you don't have predators, there's no selective advantage to being really big, and in fact, if you're really big, you use a lot of food, and food is often limiting on islands. So over evolutionary time, then, you have a shrinkage, if you will, and this happens really fast, actually. So, you know, you can have dwarfing of an elephant to the size of a very large sheepdog in 10,000 years. In some cases, you had mammoths that went from being, you know, 10 tons or something, dwarfed down to the size of a Shetland pony, or maybe even a very large dog, so about a meter high at the shoulder. This has happened not just recently, but also in the Mesozoic, so it happened to dinosaurs. There were actually sauropods, large dinosaurs, that dwarfed on islands. There is really something irresistible, and look, if you could give me a magic wand and I could get any animal I want, I I really want my own pygmy mammoth.
3: You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast and today we're talking about isolation. What it does to animals and what it does to us. Hiya. Hello. Hello. This is Tim and Pam Ooh, Fogg. I'm sounding very lied. They're climbing and rope experts. Uh, I've got you.
5: Yeah, I've got you now, yeah.
3: Masters in the delicate art of getting to hard-to-reach places.
5: And what we do with the BBC is to get crews and presenters into difficult places like up trees and into caves and then sit and make sure they're safe while they do their job. I did a shoot recently where we were underground for eight days. It was about eight hours from the surface
6: and sleeping in the caves is extraordinary because it's dark. Completely dark, there's no natural light in them. Um, no matter how long you sit in there, your eyes won't get used to the dark. And you wake up and it's just a velvety blackness and complete silence. We went to a cave called the Dragon's Breath, which is in the middle of the Namibian desert. You just squeeze down there and eventually you arrive at the head of a rift and you look down the rift and far below you, maybe 60 meters below you, you can sort of see something shimmering and you realize it's water. You're actually absolutely down into the middle of the biggest underground lake in the world and the water is phenomenal. It is absolutely clear. So you can look down into the lake over 100 metres deep and it's clear, clear water.
5: There's very, very little lives in there. A few bats um, and a few insects. But fairly close, there's another cave and in that there are some blind catfish which only live in that cave and nowhere else in the world.
6: But if you go to some other caves, there's things like snakes, quite commonly cave racer snakes, immense centipedes, absolutely incredibly huge, and um, uh, cave crickets, mm. wonderful because they've got such huge antennae.
5: I did, one night sleeping in a cave, wake up to find one chewing on my eyebrow. <laughs>
6: And the other really important thing about caves is they are the last place in the world that you can have true exploration. We were in the rainforest in uh,
5: northern Borneo in Sarawak. The caves are so big and very beautiful formed in pure white limestone and with fantastic stalactites and stalagmites. They're huge passages, I mean, big enough to drive double-decker buses down for a mile. Pam and I had seen a, pass- a side passage the day before. We said, we're going to go and explore that and map it.
6: We walked about a mile, was it, mm-hmm. of the most phenomenal cave passage, huge, with a, a river flowing through it, with the most exquisite stalactites and shapes, uh, like Endless Henry Moore sculptures, really.
5: That was in, I think, 1989. And then in 2004, we were in the same cave system exploring, and we popped through the roof into that passage that we'd found some 15 years before, and there were our footprints. And nobody else had been in since we'd been in. (laughs) We've been lucky enough to take a lot of steps that no other human has ever taken and cast light on places that no other human has ever seen and no light has ever been. And that's pretty special. That's pretty fantastic in this modern world to get to do that.
7: If
3: you're talking remote, there are fewer places on our planet more isolated than the Antarctic. That whitish streak squashed down there at the bottom of our maps... But it's a huge continent, 14 million square kilometres. Population, around 4,000 hardy souls, and that's at the peak of summer. And, of course, there's around 12 million penguins. That's where cameraman Lindsay McRae, part of the team filming for the BBC series Dynasties, went in 2016 to film Emperor Penguins.
1: I think our nearest people from where we were in Antarctica was another base, uh, the South African base, I think, maybe a couple of hundred kilometres away. Uh, I worked out from home. I was about fourteen, fifteen 15,000 kilometres, I think, in a straight line.
3: And the thing about Antarctica is, once you're there, that's it. That's where you're staying.
1: Antarctica's a weird place because if you, have, if you want to film in the winter, you have to stay for a minimum of eight months because there's this period of isolation where the weather becomes so unpredictable and... Uh, The sea ice extends so far north that ships can't get in and planes can't fly. You simply have to stay. The chances of being evacuated and and getting the assistance you need is nigh on impossible. Basically, the planes that fly during the summer are all all up in the Arctic during the Antarctic winter. So straight away, the the planes aren't even in the right hemisphere. We just had to accept that that's pretty unrealistic. It did feel incredible when the the last plane left and we were left all on our own because all of a sudden you've just been trusted in the most remote place on the planet. I'd been uh, with Becky, now my wife, uh, five or six years before I got asked to go down there and you can probably imagine her reaction when I mentioned that I'd been offered this opportunity. At, At first it was absolutely not. You, I can't believe you've even risked asking me if you can go because it's a, a plane. no. It's funny, when I m- first met Becky, she worked in telly as well. And one of the first things I said to her was that my dream was to, to film Emperors in Antarctica. And uh, she sort of remembered that. And after a couple of weeks, she said, you know what, you just just go, we'll work around this. I felt I had to prove to her that, that it was, I was worth waiting for. So we got married in the July of 2016, the same year i travelled. In late August, we had to go to Austria for two weeks to learn how to do rope and pull people out of crevasses in case of any emergencies down there. So I was actually stood on this enormous glacier up, about 3,000 metres up in Austria. I just got a text, can you ring me? I didn't think twice, to be honest. I mean, I can't believe I even had phone signal. And then, yeah, what's up? And she said, oh, uh, I'm pregnant. Blimey! Um, yeah, so I didn't really know what to think. That was a bit of a shock, um, if I'm being honest. But um, but yeah, we were chuffed a bits. and um, she uh, she just decided, well, that's that's just the way it is, and it'll all be fine. The bad weather in Antarctica during the winter can last weeks, and we did have a storm which lasted about 14 days. Uh, for which you're just stuck inside and there's, you, you're just literally looking out the window waiting for it to pass. So I remember my first day at minus 30 and I've never been more uncomfortable in my life. It was just cold to the bone like I can't describe. And that was only minus 30. It obviously got a lot colder than that. It's the most, it's the most beautiful place on the planet I've ever been to in the summer. You obviously only really experience sort of the whites and the blues, that the sun is up 24 hours a day and it's absolutely blinding. But to, to really experience it, you've got to be there in the winter. That's when you see the sun setting and you see the darkness and the silence as well is indescribable. It's, there's obviously no noise or light pollution down there. So when there's no wind and the penguins aren't calling, you, you literally can't hear a thing. no light pollution you get incredible views of the stars. And also obviously the southern lights, the auroras were just mind blowing. We had greens and purples and pinks and whites and it just flew across the sky so quickly. It's stuff you never imagine you'd be able to see. We had the job of filming it, so it's not something you can sort of sit back and enjoy. Purples and pinks and whites, it's running around with a camera trying to get as many shots as possible. Greens and purples and pink, whites and the blues. And it's, it's yeah, it's, it's hard to describe, but it, um, it's an incredible place. of our rooms we have one telephone line and that cable can either be plugged into the telephone which is effectively a landline telephone or your computer which gives you internet access and I remember Becky rang me the night before saying make sure your phone's plugged in uh, in case I need to ring you and this was obviously four or five days before he was due Um, and I stupidly had my cable plugged into my computer because I was uh, watching an episode of Traffic Cops the night before Anyway, a will knocked on my door at 6 a.m. the following morning and said, Linds, Becky's managed to call me. Can't get a hold of you. You better give her a ring. So I gave her a quick ring and, and she was like, Oh, Linds, I think today's the day. And I'm like, Don't be daft. You know, it, it won't be today. And she said, Well, there's nothing else you can do. So just you go off on your normal days filming. You, you can't just stop. And so uh, we got geared up and went out to film. And it was one of the first days we actually got down onto the sea ice. So I was roped up uh, actually filming birds arriving. Um, quite close to her, an enormous Weddell seal. Um, and Tim, the the station leader, um, got a phone call from Becky's mum, and he radioed me, saying, Lynn, you better get back. So I uh, shot back to the station, and literally as I got back and managed to log on to Skype, he was born. He must have just been born, because I could just hear crying, but I was sat there, and... Um, yeah, it was um, it was a weird experience. <laughs> Walter's 15, almost 16 months and he's, I'm looking out the window and he's just running across the garden wearing no clothes whatsoever, but I'm looking at a picture now actually on my desk of, uh, of an image that we took with the uh, Aurora above the penguins and um, yeah it's all the stuff that I think well not many people can say they've ever seen so I feel extremely lucky.
7: I've always really found blue whales fascinating.
3: This is Mike Ames, he's a filmmaker in Saline,
7: Michigan. Even when I was young I found like a Highlights magazine and reading about them, it blew my mind. I I grew up in a very small town and I don't ever think a creature of that size had really occurred to me as like a young 12 year old boy and I've always thought they were interesting. When I was the most stressed out, I found, almost kind of reflexively, I would, like, imagine following a blue whale in the ocean, just a couple hundred feet behind it, and the tail moving. You know, it was like a breathing exercise.
3: Mike found out that in moments of loneliness, sometimes all you need for company is a good set of headphones and a really good story about a whale.
7: The story of this specific whale has to do with uh, the Cold War ending and uh, the United States had installed uh, a pretty vast array of sonar listening equipment around the ocean. They would use it for different studies, uh, study noise pollution, study all kinds of things and one particular sound stood out. The pattern of the song matched pretty closely with that of blue whales. But it came in at 52 hertz, which is, you know, 20, 30 hertz off of what whales typically sing at. Whales typically sing closer to 10 or 20 hertz. So it was a very unusual sound. Nothing else in the ocean came close. It's very deep, it traveled very far. It was very easy to track. And so they began to follow this sound. They began to piece together this story of there's one whale and it swims in a loop over and over and over again over uh, more than a decade period. calls out constantly, and its song is never answered. Uh, no other whales respond to it within the area. And it's, uh, it's just alone. The thing about whale song is
0: it's low. Really low which makes it hard for us to hear.
3: So when recordings we listen to, it's sped up, usually ten times, which raises the pitch into a range of frequencies that we can hear. But Mike wanted to hear the real thing.
7: I took the sound that Noah released, and I, I slowed it down to real time.
3: If you're listening to this in the car, or on earbuds, you might not be able to hear this at all. Seriously, 52 hertz is so low, some speakers can't cope with it.
7: And it was just a really unique, calming sound. You feel it, sometimes more than you can hear it. And I kind of found myself listening to it off and on when I was writing or working on other editing projects. And um, yeah, so that was the start of it, I guess. It's just such a strange story. I think part of what I find interesting about it is that I can't possibly imagine being one of the largest creatures ever to have lived on Earth, swimming through the ocean alone. I think it's unfathomable to imagine. But I I do really appreciate being alone. Um, I, I don't I think I'm very good at being an outgoing person and I don't mind being alone sometimes. The story of the 52 Roots Whale, I think, is is pretty personal for each person that likes it and I think they go away with their own experience of it. And I think some people find that kind of moving when they're in a very lonely place that, that this creature keeps going, keeps looking. People respond and tell me that they suffered really badly from insomnia. They would listen to it to fall asleep and it was the first kind of calming thing that worked. Uh, people have written me and said that they really struggle with writer's block and that they put the sound on and it really kind of helped them. I think as much as some people want to go find um, you know be able to find this whale and see it I think there's something kind of nice about The idea that it has become such a a larger story that so many people respond to and that I think it's so much more meaningful and kind of beautiful that there is no definitive explanation.
3: To leave you with one last isolated thought to accompany you on your lonely path out in the kent countryside in the uk there's a place called otford and in otford there's a field and in the field there's a model of our home planet earth you'd be forgiven if you missed it though it's just under three millimeters in diameter nine meters up the field there's an even smaller model that's of venus And at the top of the field, there's a shiny metallic sphere three metres in diameter. That's the Sun. In fact, our whole solar system is here. Well, not all in this field. Saturn is in a car park just nearby, and poor old Pluto is around a kilometre away. It's perfectly to scale, one millimetre to 4,500 kilometres. The nearest star to us is Proxima Centauri. If the entire solar system is in a square kilometre in the south of England, do you know where Proxima and is? It's in Los Angeles. And the brightest star in our sky, Sirius, that's in Sydney. If you ever get to thinking that there's no wilderness left on Earth, that our busy little planet is too full and cramped to ever feel truly alone, just think of that tiny 3 millimeter little ball in a field in Kent. We're almost unimaginably alone. The most isolated place on Earth is Earth. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. Join us next time when we'll be bringing you stories about growing up, including some angsty teenage elephants and a jellyfish that ages backwards. Some of the stories you heard in this podcast came from the storytellers and makers of BBC Earth's latest landmark programme, Dynasties. Narrated by Sir David Attenborough, we follow the lives of five extraordinary animals, each in a heroic struggle against rivals and against the forces of nature, fighting for their own survival and for the future of their dynasties. Visit bbcearth.com forward slash dynasties for more information on when you can catch the series in your country.